Hello and welcome back to our next episode of Private Markets Made Human, the podcast from Hamilton Lane that brings information and perspective from our greatest asset, our people. I'm your host, Fabio Montaigne. Our guest today is a seasoned real estate investment professional, having held several roles across private equity, investment management and investment banking. She joined Hamilton Lane in 2022 as a principal in our real assets team responsible for the due diligence of primary, secondary, and co-investment opportunities in real estate. She's joining us today to shed some light on some of the biggest themes we're seeing in the real estate market, touching both key challenges and opportunities. Please welcome Elizabeth Bell. Liz, welcome to the podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you. It's uh, I'm thrilled to be here and thank you for inviting me. Um, so I thought we'd kick this off by maybe giving the listeners an overview of the global private real estate market. Would you be able to give an overview of what this market looks like in terms of size and also how this is broken down across sectors, strategies, geographies, etc.? Sure, sure. So overall investable commercial real estate globally is estimated to be around $19.5 trillion. Um, of that, the professionally managed segment, which we would we would look at, is around 13 trillion. Breaking that down geographically, it's about 45% in the Americas, the bulk of which is the US. You've got about 30% in Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and then the remaining 25% in Asia Pacific. Um, recently, I was looking at just out of curiosity, how you rank the countries. And I found the top five markets account for two-thirds of the professionally managed real estate. And of course, you'd expect the U.S. is the deepest market here, accounting for about 40% of total real estate. But then the other four were in list of listing these in terms of descending order of, of size. The next was China, then Japan, then the U.K. and Germany. So I was pretty interested in that. Wow, that, that's certainly a, a giant market by by any standard. Maybe moving our attention to fundraising, do you would you be able to provide a, an overview of how real estate private fundraising fared in 22 and 23? Uh, obviously, private equity, private credit. Um, we we saw global you know records in ter- in terms of fundraising for 2021, with the market a little bit more challenging um, more recently. Are we seeing a similar trend um, across the real estate market and you know across sectors and geographies as well? That that'll be very interesting to hear about. Yeah, sure. So um, similar trends in real estate, which you're seeing across private markets. So within real estate, real estate private equity fundraising peaked in 2021 with about 230 billion raised. It trailed off slightly in 22 with about 206 billion raised, which is still significant, but the bulk of that was during the first half of the year. Um, in 2023, we expect a much steeper decline on a full year basis. And you can really see this when you look at the first half of the year figures. So only 72 billion was raised during the first half of this year. Um, and what's really important to note of that, of the 72 billion that was raised, 30 billion came from one fund, Blackstone Fund, Fund 10. So um, the bulk of that, you know, 
goes to one fund, the remainder, you've got $42 billion, which is, is pretty low by all standards. In fact, the total volume by dollars and number of funds is the lowest it's been since the 2011-2013 vintages. In terms of strategies, the bulk of the capital that was raised this year was for opportunistic. But again, that's a little bit um, skewed because of Blackstone 10, which was opportunistic. Um, the other two fund strategies we saw significant capital for was value add and, and debt strategies. And also, I want to point out, there was a very little capital raised for core funds this year. And that's not surprising given um, valuations in that market haven't really caught up to what we're seeing in in real life in, in the transactions. Um, in terms of sector-specific funds, so not surprising. The bulk was multifamily and industrial, about 95% across those two sectors. And then similarly, again, not surprising, um, North America was the largest recipient of this capital, over five times more than what went to Europe and Asia. Well, so that theme that we're seeing across you know, the wider private markets of the mega funds really dominating the fundraising environment. That's definitely seems like it's playing out in real estate too. You touched on multifamily and industrials. It'd be quite interesting to see, to get your perspective, sort of big picture, how you're viewing the real estate market today and maybe a breakdown across the different sectors, including those two. Um, And also more generally how inflation and higher rates are impacting the market. Great. So a few questions there. I'll start with kind of how we see the world big picture. So when we look at when we look at the real estate market, we try to identify demand drivers, both cyclical and structural. And then we overlay valuations and capital markets to find opportunities. In terms of structural demand drivers, we see a few changes that are impacting the market today. Um, E-commerce, Housing deficit, aging population are all structural trends supportive of industrial, residential, healthcare, real estate. Conversely, e-commerce and work from home trends are are negative demand drivers for retail and office sectors. Let me kind of unpack this a little bit more. So within um, industrial, you see, all of us are aware of this, the rise of e-commerce really supports demand for industrial logistics assets. And um, all of us, when we're locked in during the pandemic, may have done a little bit more online shopping than we had in the past. And um, some stats to prove that were pre-pandemic, online sales represented around 14% of total retail sales. Since the start of the pandemic and and current, it represents around 20 to 23% of total retail sales. You can see this has a real impact on real estate. In addition, another fact that's good to keep in mind, every online online sale through an e-commerce channel requires three times the logistical space needed for a bricks and mortar sale. So this is really heavy on logistics every time you purchase something off Amazon. Some other factors that are structural factors that are supporting industrial are, you know, we saw supply chain issues and nearshoring trends. And these are also larger, larger changes impacting um, the industrial real estate. Within residential, another area that is supported by structural demand drivers. In the U.S., we have a structural housing deficit. And this was really surprising to me when I dove into the the details. So after the global financial crisis, this is important, there were fewer homes built during the 10-year period from 2008 to 2018 than in any decade since the 1960s. So the supply side was really limited 
since the GFC. And this led to a housing shortage before the pandemic, anywhere between you know, four to seven million in the U.S., depending on the source and, and how you look at those figures. But my background has been in emerging markets. And so a housing deficit is not surprising there. You know, I think to Brazil, their housing shortfall is estimated at five to seven million. So when you compare that to the US, that's a real surprising number. And the amount of of housing units that are needed in the US is staggering. So this, this deficit is really supporting the need for multifamily. In addition, when you do look at the, the housing supply that's in existence, you know, prices are at all-time highs, impacting affordability. And with mortgage rates increasing right now, it's really eroding the purchasing power even further. So again, all of these factors support the need for rental housing, especially in the higher growth markets like the Sun Belt. Um, another structural change we see taking place is uh, the aging population. And as you can imagine, as people get older, they have more healthcare requirements. And this... Um, is definitely creating demand for healthcare real estate. And so when we think about those positive structural demand drivers, we nail, we also need to layer in, you know, how how are the valuations? How's the pricing level and, and where do we find opportunity? And within that, we're seeing both multifamily and industrial are, are quite expensive. But in order for us to find best opportunities, we're looking for a little bit of niche plays within those sectors. So industrial, we're looking at industrial outdoor storage, residential, we're looking at some affordable housing or kind of rescue capital situations. Um, so that's kind of the structural side of how we look at the market. Uh, in terms of the cyclical side, you know, we like to say we're cycle aware. Um, and what we see when you look at the sectors, there's some virtuous and vicious cycles that are emerging that are even further creating um, positive or negative effects for the asset classes. So, for example, within office, as I mentioned, you know, we're facing structural headwinds right now, given work from home trends, but office is also very cyclically sensitive. And you've looked at the past trends, office has definitely underperformed during periods of downturns. So kind of office has this double whammy effect that you, you want to kind of stay away from right now. Conversely, um, when you look at the data and historic performance, multifamily has outperformed other sectors during periods of town downturns, has been very resilient. And so that's kind of a, a double positive factors, structural and cyclical supporting multifamily. Um, last part of this I'll just mention is that there's also a cyclical lack of financing in the market. Um, and this was exacerbated earlier this year by a lot of the bank failures. And so we're seeing a lot of opportunity today for debt investments, given this lack of available financing, that these debt investments can achieve equity-like returns. So we think it's a great time in the cycle for credit as well. There's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think that's, um, you know, you can definitely see, it sounds like there's a very much a bifurcated market in terms of sectors multifamily housing and industrial seem to be performing very well in this market. And on the flip side, obviously office is, is, is struggling a little bit more. You touched on the financing market. Um, I would be very interested to hear about the financing landscape landscape for commercial real estate, you know, maybe just give a sense as to what that, what that looks like. Sure. Um, so when you look at the U.S. commercial real estate mortgage market, it's about a $5 trillion market. And about, you bifurcate that, $4.5 trillion is in stabilized assets, so income producing, and about half a trillion is in construction or development financing. When you take out the construction loans and just look at the stabilized uh, mortgages, 
banks hold less than 40% of the commercial mortgages. And then the agencies hold slightly higher than 20%. So that's the bulk of your lending sources for commercial real estate in the U.S. When I dove in a little bit further, you know, the top 25 largest banks hold about 14% of all outstanding commercial mortgages today. And earlier in, you know, this year, these money center banks really pulled back earlier in 2022, these money center banks really pulled back and particularly for office. So at the beginning of 2022, before um, the market really started to taper off, it was very difficult to get financing for office, which was a good thing. Um, however, the other sectors could still go to the banks and, you know, with the right asset could get financing. Um during the second half of the, the year last year in 2022, that got tighter. And however, regional banks were there to fill that gap. At the beginning of this year, we saw, you know, regional banks account for about a third of all commercial real estate mortgages. What happened earlier this year when the regional banks pulled back after SVB and other banks failed was that the, the, these regional banks left the market as well. And so that created a real shortfall in funding. And you see a little bit of life goes step up in that gap, but we're really seeing a proliferation of credit funds. And this was the opportunity I alluded to before, where a lot of these credit funds, because capital is so scarce, are able to charge pretty attractive rates and get, you know, some double digit returns for taking on a senior position. So we like that. Um, you know, other things we're just seeing high level, I mentioned the cyclical lack of financing in the market. Um, you know, this this is making it very challenging for construction lending, too. Um, and that's we think that's also a good thing. So what we're seeing right now is that because there's uh, it's difficult to access debt, there's less construction taking place, which is helping right size some of the hot sectors like multifamily or industrial. And so we think, you know, this year as the banks, it's difficult to get loans. The supply and demand balance there will will normalize, which is healthy for the market. So, is it? Would you say it's fair to say that since the SVB collapse, the availability capital is obviously um, reduced, and financing costs have they have they gone up ever since? Absolutely, um, and I think as you started to see the the rate hikes over the past two years, the costs have increased um, similarly. So, especially since. The beginning of this year, the spreads have widened. So with the, the collapse of SVB, you're seeing wider spreads. You're also seeing lower advance rates. So a lot of times we would see, you know, 65% loan to value was typical for acquisitions. Today, you're lucky if you're getting 50, 55%. Um, and, you know, the, the spreads have also increased anywhere from 100 to 150 bips, depending on your sector. So your base rate's higher, your spreads are wider, and um, your advance rates are lower, which is really creating this gap in the credit market. We're seeing, um, you know, different funds play in the scenario in, in various ways. So we're seeing senior lenders come in, you know, maybe go to 55% advance rates, then sell off a, a piece of the mortgage. So do an A note, B note structure. So effectively creating a MES piece, or we're seeing a lot of um, MES and preferred equity come into the market to fill that gap. And that can, that those, the terms on those can be the you know, MES and PREF are high teens. So pretty attractive positions, depending on how high up you go in the capital stack too, which is something we're very cautious on. That, that, that's super interesting. And you mentioned the opportunity for, you know, for real estate debt funds to come in and fill the void. 
Are you able to sort of quantify the amount of commercial real estate debt that sets to mature in, in the near to medium term? Yes. So this is something we talk about frequently. So there's a wall of maturities that are coming due. Um, and this is what's really creating an interesting market. So there's about a trillion of commercial real estate mortgages that are coming due by 2024. And a third of those were originated since the beginning of 2020. So you can see there were bridge loans three years in um, are, you know, are expiring and they need uh, refinancings to take place. In addition, beyond that, there's another 1.5 trillion that will mature by 2027. So you're seeing a lot of these assets that um, secure debt in, call it, 2018, 2019, 2020 at peak valuations, these bridge loans are now coming due and um, lenders are requiring additional capital for refinancing. And within the office space, you know, you're, you're seeing lenders that if they're willing to refi need additional 30 to 40% of equity cushion. Other sectors, it's less. Um, but, you know, this is, this is where we're seeing capital solutions are needed to right-size these structures. And this is an opportunity we like right now. Now, that, that those are some big numbers. And I, I can presume and imagine that the bulk of that debt is probably linked to, to the office and potentially retail space as well, more so than sort of multifamily and, and industrial. Is, is that a fair assumption? Um, of, of the maturities that are coming up, it's a mix. But I would say that the borrowers that need help are within office, for the most part, are within the office and retail sectors. Um, one area, a question you asked earlier, which I don't think I fully answered, was kind of how is the impact of rising rates really impacting the market too? Um, and that, you know, we, we see that in several ways. We're seeing higher rates are impacting yields, cash flow, and transaction volumes. Um, starting with the the growth factor, which, um, you know, is the initial driver of this fiscal response. We saw in 2020, 21, 22, that there was tremendous growth in rents in industrial and multifamily. And they were kind of double digit increases year over year. And in some pockets of the country where, you know, there was high growth, you're seeing 20%, 30% increases in rent in multifamily and industrial, which is staggering. So this is a positive factor impacting the market and, you know, inflation, resulted as a part of this, but um, this drove NOI growth and cash flow. So this was leading on one hand to higher valuations. And it was really in industrial multifamily. And the second, you know, the second point, how the interest rates impacted the market, cap rates haven't kept up with the same pace of expansion as the the pace and speed of the interest rate hikes. And so the cap rate spreads over 10-year treasuries, they've compressed. And in multifamily industrial today, they're about 0% or 1%. So, so very tight spreads there. Um, and just for perspective, long-term average here is about 4%. So you can see that's lower. However, when you look at other sectors such as office and hospitality, you know, this the spread over treasuries is much wider there. And these are deemed to be riskier sp- sectors. So they're around five, six percent. And so when you're looking at the industrial multifamily side, you have a twofold effect. You've got growth and NOI growth, so supporting valuations. However, you have this expectation that cap rates will expand and therefore capital values should get hit. And so when you look at the overall market, this two battling factors of growth versus cap expansion 
is really kind of leaving valuations neutral for multifamily and industrial. And I shouldn't say, there's some declines. We expect some declines in value there, call it 10 to 20% overall max. Um, And it definitely depends on location. But within the office sector, you're looking at declines of up to 40, 50%. And that's because you didn't have the growth and you also have your cap expansion. All of this today, what we're seeing in the market, there's gridlock because this lag, no one, (laughs) my friend I was talking to recently had had a nice way to put it. He said, there's a lot of FOMO in the market. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. There's not a lot of transactions taking place. And he was like, no, FOMO, fear of more office. So no one (laughs) is going towards office. Um, People want to reduce their exposure and they're not taking on more. And um, they're looking to deploy capital in multifamily and industrial. However, in that space, you haven't had that pricing reset. As I mentioned, the spread over treasuries is really tight. And so you have a wide bid-ask spread that's really just creating this, this gridlock in activity. And you can see that the stats reflect this. So transaction activity really started to slow during the second half of 22. And you can see transaction volumes you know, 2021 was a record high year with 1.4 trillion of transactions. In 2022, it was still a pretty strong year. It was 20% off that figure. So still decent, but the bulk of that was in the first half of the year. So the second half of the year, transactions really slowed. So far in 2023, the figures are even worse. And so this is leading to the lowest transaction volumes that we've seen in over a decade. And I will say, you know, starting this summer, you started to see some level of acknowledgement that there is a pricing reset. And so we're, we're seeing pockets of light that, you know, cap rates have expanded even in multifamily and industrial. We're looking you know, in the, the high fours, 5% range for both of those sectors before they were in the high threes, low fours. So there's been a reset there and and that's healthy for the market. But until you get a little bit of that reset, it, it's difficult to to get the debt because the lenders, you know, you've got negative financing if your rates are higher than the cap rates, your interest rates are higher than the cap rates. And so lenders don't want to lend at the, the you know, terms that the borrowers are seeking. And, um, you know, you've got very little transaction activity. Well, there's, there's certainly a lot to unpack there. And I, I love the reference to FOMO um, in, in the office space. Is there, just out of interest, is there a pocket of light within office? Um, you know, is there, or, or do we kind of sort of segregate that between high grade, um, high quality versus maybe older um, offices? Uh, you nailed it. So that's, there is a, there is a pockets of hope within office and the bifurcation is class A office, brand new office, well-located is doing very well. Um, And a stat that is loose stat. So add some cushion here, but I heard around 70 to 75% of all leases that were signed in 2022 were for class A office. So there is a flight to quality, um, well-located assets that, you know, have the right layout, have the right um, air, environmental aspects are attracting tenants. So there's, you know, there are pockets of of hope there and they're able to get financing too for for the, the best trophy assets. Okay, well, super interesting. I, I think it'd be worth maybe turning our attention now to the strategies that we uh, effectively cover within Real Estate of Hamilton Lane. Uh, right. Could you 
break this down and specifically the areas that you're focused on too? Sure. So within the real asset team, we're slightly unique within Hamilton Lane in that we can invest across strategies. So we do primary funds investing and we invest in both established and emerging managers there. We can do secondaries, we can do co-invest, and we can do more programmatic JV. So getting even closer to the asset. Um, you know, within primary sector, what we're seeing is uh, a lot of re-ups today. You know, taking on risk in this market is um, a challenge, but also then taking on an unfamiliar manager or someone that has been unproven as a partner is just another layer of risk. So we're seeing a lot of re-ups on the primary side. That may change as we start to see some of the valuations come out this year. And um, some of our existing managers, I'm already starting to see this, are starting to write down their assets. So assuming zero for some office. And this is on both the equity and debt side. So, you know, lenders are taking keys back and this is happening real time. So that might change track record and cause us to um, you know, rethink some of those re-ups. On the emerging manager side, we are very active within this space. And so this is an area where we want to support emerging managers that have opportunity to grow and we can partner with over time. So this is a focus of ours and um, you know, we're spending a lot of time and resources meeting the different groups. We understand you know, the challenges that they face and we want to be supportive. There's a lot of groups out there that target emerging managers, however, benefit from their nascency and um, take a little bit more economics than you normally would be able to. We're not doing that. We're acting as supportive limited partners alongside of them. And we provide value add um, work with them. So, you know, a lot of times these managers, they are very good or they're operators or, you know, very good at the real estate, but they don't necessarily understand the investment management business. We can bring that expertise. And um, by way of background, I worked for an emerging manager for five years just prior to Hamilton Lane. So I have lived through the difficulties and challenges and there's challenges uh, across the board there. So, you know, I apply a lot of, you know, I have a lot of empathy when I speak to emerging managers and understand what they're going through, not just, you know, listen, we're all investors, finding deals is hard enough, but then trying to build a platform, doing it in an institutional way where you're kind of bootstrapping everything is very tough. So, um, you know, we're a great partner within the emerging manager space. Within secondaries, similar to our private equity peers here at Hamilton Lane, great opportunity today. We're seeing LP to LP trades where denominator effect or other portfolio construction issues are causing... Um, you know, LPs to sell funds that are very high quality. And oftentimes, given our our breadth on the primary side, you know, we manage 100 billion of assets within the real estate group. We see these funds. A lot of times we either know the manager, have invested with the manager or are in the fund itself. And so it's very easy for us to underwrite and understand the value there. And then co-invest is something I really want to touch on here. This is a, an area of focus for our team where uh, we are growing. And I think it's one of the best best opportunities in the market today. When you think about what's out there in the market, it's it's very much you've got your, we can go out and say top down, we like these sectors, we like these geographies. But the difficult part is that bid ask spread that I mentioned earlier and the financing. And so what we like about the co-invest program today is that there's a lot of managers that need capital. And so very high quality managers are coming to us, groups that wouldn't have come to us for co-invest in the past. And they're looking for partnership and we're able to underwrite the assets alongside of them. So 
we can understand very clearly these are pre-specified visible assets. We know where the pricing is going to be. We know where the debt terms are and we can make a decision whether it works or not for our underwriting. That's very different than when you're looking, than you're, you know, looking at a fund investment, which is a lot of blind pool of risk still. And you're relying on the manager to, um, you know, make, make the right decision when it comes to pricing. So we really like Co-Invest. There's lots of opportunity in the market today. It's a very deep market. And um, across the capital stack, too, we're seeing Co-Invest opportunities on the debt side and equity side. Very interesting. That was actually going to be my next question around the cap stack. So in terms of, I guess, all the strategies, in particular Co-Invest, are we seeing more opportunities on the debt side, on the equity side, or is it really a broad mix? You know, it's a really tough question that we debate every day. So we're generally targeting call it 12 to 14%, so low teens net returns for our co-invest capital. So we don't have to swing for the fences. Um, a lot of that is kind of value-add type returns. However, today, you know, we're seeing a wide spectrum of you can get 12 net via debt. So we're seeing, you know, a manager come in, take a senior loan position, put um, debt on that loan. So do a loan on loan or sell an A note. And they're able to get 12% net returns on that, which is attractive taking a senior position. Now, you know, there's a little risk there because it's it's debt on debt, but we like that. Then you think about, okay, what are other opportunities we can get within along the capital stack? Well, if you're taking on MES or PREF, a lot of times we're seeing, you know, mid-teens, mid to high teens, depending on how high up the capital sap you're going, return profile. So on a net basis, that's kind of 13 and a half, 14 and a half net returns. Okay. You know, you're a little bit higher up the LTVs and you really have to understand valuation there to under, to, you know, understand your protection. But that's attractive. On the equity side, you know, we're, we should be seeing high teens returns. And so you need to understand what type of risk you're taking on. The other overlay we always look at is, okay, to get these returns, how much real estate risk are you taking on? Are you doing development? How heavy is your value-add component? Um, is this in a market that's been hot? And therefore, what you know will that rent growth continue? Um, what's the supply and demand dynamic within that specific market? So again, for the co-invest, we, we love the co-invest because we have so many different levers to pull on. We have very flexible capital here and we can be, you know, more hunters than just gatherers. And we can say, okay, you know, we've really like multifamily in the Sun Belt. We're going to target that and then look at the best risk adjusted returns along the capital stack to achieve the, the co-invest returns we need. So it's actually well, yeah. a lot of it's a lot of fun to be in the market right now because you you can be creative in your deal making, and um, you know we think this this repricing is very attractive. No, it's certainly certainly very attractive market right now. Um, you touched on this earlier in the conversation, just in terms of maybe some of more niche sectors that we like. I believe you mentioned industrial outdoor storage and affordable housing as two examples. Would you maybe be able to provide a bit more color on on where we see the best opportunities in terms of subsectors? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, the gridlock with multifamily and industrial kind of traditional traditional subsets within those pricing's really tight or you're getting negative leverage. It, that's not something we necessarily want to take on. However, we want to benefit from the structural demand drivers I mentioned. So within industrial, we scoured the market to see what's the best place to play. And we came across industrial outdoor storage. So we've been looking at the sector for a year, two years now. And what we like it's is that the sector itself 
it's almost it's it's low coverage sites that um, support you know a lot of e-commerce activities or infrastructure activities. And so you know some call you might look at it and say, oh, that's a parking lot. We say that's fantastic real estate. And um, the tenants that are seeking this type of real estate are a lot of you know e-commerce. So Amazon trucks need a place to park. They need to be within an urban setting so they can get to houses quickly. Um, other, you know, when we look at these infill sites, other tenant profiles can range from truck parking to truck maintenance facilities to kind of high flow through facilities. So there is a bit of a, um, you know, open air or cross dock uh, building, but still pretty low coverage, less than 30% FAR, kind of closer to 20% actually. Um, and so, you know, equipment rental storage. So the infrastructure component here is very important and it drives the sector. Uh, container storage is another one. So you've got a lot of strong demand drivers. And what's great about industrial outdoor storage is that the supply side is even tighter than traditional industrial. So think about a large parking lot where you've got a lot of trucks coming in and out. No one wants that in their neighborhood. The zoning requirements for new industrial outdoor storage are so difficult that there's no net new supply coming online. So if you have a site, you know you're not going to be threatened by new supply coming on, you know, down the street and your tenant flocking to that location. In fact, if your tenant leaves your space, it's very difficult for them to find something in the area that works for them, especially within their supply chains. So it's it's very tight on the the supply side, and this leads to attractive pricing. So because this is a bit of a niche sector, we're seeing you know, yield going in yields about 150 to 250 basis points wider than traditional industrial. Um, you're also seeing the same rent dynamics where rents in place rents are somewhere between, you know, depending on the market, 20 to 40% below current market rents. So as tenants roll, you're able to mark to market. And because they're very sticky, you can, you can drive rents here. Um, so you can get, and you can get accretive financing. So you're getting seven to 8% um, cash on cash yields, which is something we really like in this segment. Uh, another uh, attractive cash on cash play that we like is within essential retail. And so this is a sector where it, retail was a dirty, dirty word for uh, many years. Um, but the essential retail, which is, you know, your convenience shopping, um, where people actually have to go for, for services. So think um, nail salons, banks, pizza parlors. These are the the strip centers. We like the ones that are non-grocery anchor because grocery anchors are a little bit more expensive. But if you're looking at these solid strip centers, you know, they are trading for around six and a half, seven and a half cap rates. Um, and they have similar rent growth where, you know, 10, 20% below market rents in place today. So you can mark to market and you're getting accretive financing. So you can see kind of 10 eight to 10% cash on cash yields within this sector. You have to be very careful and you have to work with a specialist because not all strip centers are created equal. Um, and uh, one of the partners that we work with calls it the bread loaf phenomenon. They are seeking a rectangular shape that has great ingress, egress off of a you know high traffic corner and um, they want bread loaves. So take a, a, a rectangle, cut it up into equal um, slices, and that's the type of space they're looking to fill. Pretty generic, 
you know, 2,000, 3,000 square feet. And if a tenant leaves, it's easy to backfill. There's not a lot of tenant improvement cost. And, um, you know, that that's what they like to do, keep it simple in high growth locations. So we like the sector. It is a little tricky. You have to work with best operators. Um, and then lastly, uh, affordable housing is another segment we like. And we're able to, you know, within that segment, um, there are pockets of opportunity where you can, get going in yields of, you know, north of five, 6%, um, and then accretive financing from agency debt there. So that's another kind of cash on cash play um, within the affordable segment. And there is no shortage of demand there, as we talked about earlier. Well, I know there's certainly a lot there um, and very interesting space. Um, Maybe as a final wrap-up question, um, where do you see the best access point for investment real estate today? By far, I'd say co-invest. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, co-invest market is very strong. There's a lot of very well-respected um, managers, operators with great track records that need capital today. So that's a great dynamic. They're coming to us. You know, our reputation in the market is very strong. We've got great network and reach. So we're seeing a lot of deal flow. Um, we're able, and that's important in today's market because valuations are all over the map. So we see the deal flow. We're able to use that data to understand where pricing should be and where we want to play. As I mentioned, we're seeing opportunities across the capital stack. So we can really determine where is the best risk adjusted position for our capital. Um, it's also a segment that is pre-specified. So we are able to underwrite a specific asset. We understand entry valuation. We understand the debt terms. We can go visit that asset. We will visit every single asset. And so, you know, this is a point in the market that is just a tremendous opportunity today. Uh, that's great. Thank, thank you so much, Liz. This has been extremely helpful, insightful for myself, and I'm sure the listeners as well. I'd like to thank everyone for listening in to another episode of Private Markets Made Human, and please stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.